and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Stephanie Hoffer, Professor of Law at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. We will discuss her article, Making the Law More Able, uh, Reforming Medicaid for Disability, as well as her work on comparative disability law. So welcome to the program, Stephanie. Thanks. Thanks. It's, it's wonderful to be here. So I, your, your paper was really fascinating and a subject that I will confess that I personally know um, very little about. And I imagine many listeners might not be familiar with Medicaid and how it relates to people with, with, with disabilities. So I was wondering if you could kind of start by providing a little bit of background uh, specifically with respect to you know how the American with Americans with Disabilities Act regulates the treatment of people with disabilities, sort of what it requires states to do, and how that intersects with the Medicaid system. Sure, sure. So um, uh, beginning in about the I don't know mid to late eighties, the United States made a transition from generally institutionalizing people who had um, moderate to severe disabilities to providing care for them um, in the community. Uh, So um, it used to be the case that uh, people who had disabilities were um, entitled to the right to care in an institution. And with this new system, they were permitted to waive that right. Uh, and so the assistance that people receive from the federal government and through states to live in the community independently is often referred to as the waiver. And so this is um, the language that I'm going to use while I'm talking with you. And um, uh, individuals with disabilities a lot of times require uh, assistance to live and work in the community. And a, a lot of a lot of what they need in many cases uh, amounts to social service. So, you know, um, transportation to a job or on the job assistance or someone who stops in a couple times a week to help them live independently. And a lot of that assistance is paid for federally through Medicaid dollars, but it's provided by state agencies. Um, Without Medicaid eligibility, people with disabilities oftentimes are unable to access this assistance that's provided by the states. Um, But the problem, a a major problem for individuals with disabilities is that Medicaid is available only to people who fall below certain income and asset holding guidelines. Uh, And so this creates a problem um, if you're somebody, um, you know, at middle income, let's say, uh, who has a a child who has a disability, or if you yourself are an individual with disability um, who requires assistance to remain in the workforce, um, you can't maintain access to it if your wages are too high. Uh, and there are some workarounds, but this is just a, a sort of a, a fundamental conflict at the heart of the system of how we try to include people with disabilities in the community in the United States. Yeah, and I was really surprised by how dramatic that shift has been. I mean, based on your paper, it seems like there was a very large number of people uh, who were living in institutions at one point in time, and that number is much, much smaller now, it seems like by way of kind of policy intention. And yet it sounds like the 
policies that you're talking about can make it really difficult for some of those people who make the choice to be living outside of an institution consistent with the policy actually, practically speaking, do so. Yeah, that's correct. Um, These services, uh, social support services, typically are either just not available on the private market because the market is so small, or if they are available, the price is really high. Uh, And so deinstitutionalization was um, necessary. And I think for most people with disabilities was a real benefit. But um, uh, the government hasn't really come in in a robust way um, uh, to provide these services to people who need them, who may be capable of working. Um, and so it's just, uh, it's a difficult situation. The, the institutionalization question, um, it's still it's still a real point of conflict for people who have um, truly debilitating conditions. Um, uh, there have been plenty of uh, studies to suggest that people with disabilities who are uh, included in the community in the workforce just overall have better health outcomes and better mental health outcomes. Um, and so it's a plus for most people to be out in the community to the extent that they're able. And in, in fact, there's been litigation in a lot of different states, and some of it um, spearheaded by Sam Bagenstos, um, to uh, get states to either close or severely limit um, um, their their institutional provision of care. Uh, but in the meantime, you've got you've got all these people who are, um, you know, the, the Medicaid eligibility guidelines are so low. Um, so um, typically 75 percent of the poverty line and fewer than 2000 assets. And it varies a little bit by state to state. But, um, you know, that amounts to about uh, $735 of what's referred to as countable income per month. So it's, it's, it's more than that, but it's still extremely low, you know, like around the $1,400 mark in a lot of places and fewer than 2000 assets. Uh, I mean, imagine if you, you know, are somebody who's working part-time and you manage to stay below this income threshold and your car breaks down and you need a new engine and you you can't have more than $2,000 to your name. How are you going to fix it? Um, uh, but if you out earn this limit, you know, then what? Then you lose access to the services that you need to remain integrated in the community. And so you're going to lose your job. And so it's this um, it's this no win situation for some people. And like I said earlier, there are some workarounds to this. Um, but because this is this um, federal funding of state provided services, the federal government has really been unable to mandate that states um, provide robust access to people uh, who may be able to maintain employment. So some states have done things to help and other states haven't. So when are people with disabilities entitled to this kind of financial assistance uh, pursuant to the waiver program that that you des- that you describe? And sort of, the, are people who have different kinds of different disabilities treated differently by the law at all, or is it a kind of a uniform treatment? Uh, so, each state sets its own guidelines um, within the parameters set out by the federal government. And what most states do is peg their disability determination to the determination that's made by the Social Security Administration. Um, for its eligibility for either Social Security disability or 
SSI, which most of us colloquially refer to as welfare. And there the standard is, um, uh, it's, it's a sort of a, a complicated thing to give in a sentence or two, but the gist of it is somebody has to have an impairment that's serious enough to interfere with work, and it's going to last for um, at least a year or more. Uh, and so that's generally the threshold. Um, and people, you know, people tend to drift in and out of disability over the course of a lifetime. Um, and when we have these conversations about disability, I think many of us uh, have in mind this sort of static model of disability, someone who's born with a lifelong impairment needs continuous assistance. Um, but actually, this could happen to any of us, um, you know, at any point because of accident or injury or uh, or sickness. Um, and so that, that standard that the impairment is going to last for at least a year uh, or more um, is a lot more comprehensive than I think most of us uh, consider it to be if we're just sort of thinking about it offhandedly. Right. And so when it comes to thinking about providing financial assistance to people with disabilities, why do we have or why have the federal government and the state governments imposed these kind of remarkably low um, levels of permissible income in order for people to receive financial support? What, what was the goal? Well, I think that part of the problem, I mean, I, I think it comes from a lot of different directions. And um, part of the problem is we in the United States and, and elsewhere, you know, most of the European countries have a medical model of disability. So when we think about legislating around disability, what we have in mind is somebody who has a serious medical condition and can't work. And if they can work, well, then they don't need assistance. Um, but actually, uh, a more modern way, uh, and, and I think a more enlightened way of thinking about disability is to say, um, people who have a disability have some sort of medical condition. Um, and uh, um, that in and of itself doesn't constitute disability. When you have disability is when that condition somehow interacts with a factor in the environment. Um that makes it, uh, you know, sort of hinders somebody's full and effective participation in society. And uh, um, that way of thinking about disability leaves, you know, leaves you more open to figuring out how to include people who have these medical impairments, how to include them um, in society and in the workplace, rather than just saying like, either they're healthy enough to play ball or they're not, um, which is how we've sort of always thought about it in the past. And th another upshot of this medical, model, this medical model of disability is that, you know, the disability, th the funding for social services is funneled through Medicaid, right? It's this medical insurance program. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you're just walking down the street and you say to somebody, hey, so-and-so's on Medicaid, the automatic assumption is that that person is um, a, a person who just doesn't earn enough income or doesn't, you know, have a job that provides health insurance. Um, and so they're, you know, they're in this um, position of scarcity where they need monetary assistance. But with disability you know, you could have somebody who has, you know, a mid to high level of income, um, who has some, you know, 
access uh, spending power and who still might not be able to gain access to the social services that they need to remain included in their community just because those things are just really hard to buy on the market or really expensive. Um, and so some intervention is is needed to you know correct for this market failure. And that's just not that is just not how we've thought about providing for people with disability in the past. You know, in the past, it's been, well, we have to provide medical care for these people who are deserving of our sympathy. And it, it's just not a full bodied conception of um, of these people as uh, as adults who should, you know, should be and in, in most cases want to be included uh, in the community. It's just a totally different way of thinking about it. Yeah, and that really struck me as being kind of an animating force in your paper, sort of this question about sort of why are we providing financial, federal and state financial assistance to people with disabilities, whether it's a kind of charity move or a kind of equity move. Is is that a fair distinction or a relevant distinction? Um yeah, I think it is a, a fair and relevant distinction. And um I think it's a it gets at what I'm saying, which is that we've traditionally viewed these people as objects of charity, but the question is a is really a question of equity. Um, you know, for me, that this is a it's a it's just it's a civil rights and human rights question. Um, we've designed a society uh, around the conception of a typically able person, um, and that's you know, less expensive and more convenient for most of us, but it imposes a cost on people who don't, you know, fit that typical conception. Um, and everybody benefits from having these people included, right? Um, it, it increases the size of the workforce. It improves the quality of life of the individuals that we're talking about. Um, it increases the tax base. It's just, in most cases, it's a win-win um, but a lot of the legislation and thinking on this issue, you know, happened decades ago when, you know, like from, from Buck v. Bell until the 1960s, we just had this really benighted view of, of, um, of disability and, and what should happen, um, when you have a, a family member or a loved one who is, medically impaired in some way. Uh, and, you know, like the science has moved on exponentially by leaps and bounds since that time. And the law is just not quite keeping pace. We have this really paternalistic approach to legislating about disability. And he, even the most recent law, uh, um, the ABLE law that was part of the Internal Revenue Code just sort of has this paternalistic feel to it. And we just don't seem to be able to shake it off. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you use the term paternalistic there too? Because it seemed to me that part of the problem that you were identifying with the way, practically speaking, funneling uh, disability uh, funding through Medicaid has created is sort of part of it goes to sort of the people with disabilities themselves and their own choices that they have to make in order to qualify and receive the kind of funding that they need in order to have full um, lives. But then 
part of it also goes to the ability of their families to provide or help provide for family members with disabilities, a sort of a more benign form of paternalism, as it were, with the state's version of paternalism that seems like actually, at least in your description, in some cases being um, quite harmful to the ability of people to provide for family members effectively and also in a dignified way. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, this actually is a, a, a real personal story for me. So, um, though the way that I became interested in this work was, uh, I have a son, George, who's, uh, he's in second grade and, um, he was born with down syndrome. And when I, uh, immediately after having given birth to him, I was in the recovery room just like a couple hours later and a social worker came into the room and she said, um, one of the very first things you need to do when you get out of the hospital is contact an estate planner because you need to write him out of your will. I mean, imagine, imagine saying that to a mom who's just given birth. So George was born. um, He was whisked away to the NICU right away. I got to hold him for 10 seconds. They took him away. There I was in the room alone. And here comes a social worker. You know, you have to disinherit your son. Um, and so I, I just was in tears and I looked at her and I said, why would I do that? And she says, well, it's just really expensive to have somebody with a disability. And I said, well, we have great health insurance through the university. You know, what are you talking about? And she says, just, you just, this is just something you have to do to make sure that he has access to Medicaid. And I got really angry and I said, we don't need Medicaid. And I made her leave. Mm. Um, and I, you know, over the course of the next few months, tried to figure out why we would want to be on Medicaid. Because after that day, anytime we had a doctor's visit, um, you know, some medical provider would hand me uh, an application to get on Ohio's Medicaid waiver waiting list. And and so looking into it, what I found was um, some of the information that I just told you about the way services are provided to adults with disabilities and how it's tied to Medicaid funding. But also a really shocking piece of this is gifts from family members of cash or gifts in kind, like letting letting your adult child live in the house with you, are treated as income to the child. So, um, you know, here I am, I've given birth to a beautiful son. Um, and uh, of any of my children, he's probably the one that will require the most help in his adult life. And he's the one that I'm prevented from helping. Mm. So um, this is the situation in which I found myself um, doing what the social worker suggested I do, which is to write a will in which I had to sign a document that said my son is deemed to have predeceased me. I mean, imagine that you have an infant son and you sign a document saying he's he's dead, you know, like he's dead to us. I mean, it just was it was a horrible experience, but. Um, but the fact of the matter is if I get hit by a bus tomorrow and he inherits, you know, like a house and two cars, he's, he's disqualified from Medicaid until that money's mm. gone. So it causes families to do really strange things. And um, there are plenty of families out there, I'm sure, that would love to provide more support to their adult loved ones who have disabilities but are uh, or have in the past traditionally been prevented from doing it by this this law. Now, the ABLE Act, which passed couple years ago changed um changed that to some extent so 
Um, I was a big proponent of the passage of that, of that law, and it's made this a little bit better, but it certainly hasn't fixed everything. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe you could talk in a little bit more detail, like how that affects people's lives on a day-to-day basis and the kinds of decisions that they can practically make, like both from the perspective of disabled people who want to work and live in the world, but also you talk extensively about some of the ways, the kind of the workarounds that families have historically used to try to do a little bit more than the law sort of on its face permits them to do to help family members with disabilities. Oh yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, so let's start with uh, the perspective of, you know, an adult who has a disability and is trying to figure out what to do in this situation. Um, so, I mean, there's this problem, right? You can't earn a living wage without losing the social service benefits that you need to remain included uh, unless you unless you forfeit a part of the wage or you, you hide it somehow. Um, and so what you'll find is, and there's this great, there's this great congressional testimony from a woman named Sarah Wolf um, who has Down syndrome and she, she was testifying in favor of the passage of ABLE and she said, luckily... I have, you know, I have two jobs and luckily my employers work with me on scheduling my hours so that my wage doesn't get above the minimum requirement. But I'd really rather be able to just work as many hours as I can um, because this is keeping me from having any kind of financial security. You know, she said, you know, I can't save for a home and I can't accept gifts from my family members. Like, you know, they just, my grandparents want to give me money for my birthday and they can't like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it creates this really weird, this really weird relationship that where you have the government interfering with like normal channels of family support and interfering with, you know, people's normal ambitions to in, engage in work and try to establish some sort of career security. Um, and then, you know, of course, this is illegal. It's illegal to discriminate on the basis of disability when you're hiring. But um, I mean, employers, you know, let's say you have two employer, two potential employees, um, and one of these people, you're going to have to do all these weird hour workarounds and all this accounting, um, and you're going to have to provide accommodations for this person. And then, you know, on the other hand, you have somebody who's just, you know, a regular Joe employee who can come in and work as many hours as you can give them. Which one of those people are you going to prefer to hire? Well, you know, the deck is kind of stacked against hiring a person with a disability I mean, first of all, you've got to overcome all of this social stigma related to the disability. And if you find an employer who's willing to do that, then this person has to be willing to work with this, you know, Medicaid eligibility problem. It's just it just makes things more difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. Some states provide a Medicaid buy in program for people who are wage earners um, where you can get coverage um, if your income is below a certain amount. And those those. Uh, programs tend to be pretty reasonable in terms of what you can earn and still remain uh, Medicaid eligible, but not every state has it. Um, and so that's, you know, it's it's just sort of depends on where you live. From the perspective of a family, um, you know, and I have a, a front row seat to this, you, you, have, you have a couple choices. I mean, you could do nothing. You could do no financial planning. And then if you have any assets when you die, they're going to 
pass to your children um, and your your child with a disability is going to inherit some money that will just dis- potentially disqualify them from Medicaid. Um, if they have someone standing next to them when it happens, there's a special kind of trust they can form. Um, uh, but money in that trust uh, typically cannot be used for uh, anything that government benefits would cover. Um, and, uh, and when the, you know, when the person with the disability passes away, all of the money that's left in the trust gets uh, basically seized by the government to cover whatever services were provided through Medicaid during that person's life. It's called a, it's a Medicaid payback trust. Um, and so you could do that. You could do nothing and let that, let that run its course, um, potentially disqualifying um, your child from the services that they need to remain in the community. Or you could, you could maybe like leave the money to a sibling with the sort of, you know, wink and nod agreement that the sibling will use the money um, for the benefit of the person with a disability. But that exposes it to credit risk. So, you know, let's say the sibling gets divorced or has a major auto accident or something. Um, you know, there's nothing to protect that money that you've agreed would be used for the individual with disability and it might get lost. And then there's, you know, there's the option of um, forming a trust. So um, there's a trust that you can form that's referred to as a discretionary trust. Uh, And this, again, this is a real leap of faith. So uh, you can form this discretionary trust. It gives the trustee full discretion to um, either distribute or not distribute money in the trust to your loved one with a disability. So, um, what this does legally is makes it so that the person with the disability does not have any put on the assets inside the trust and therefore they cannot be counted for purposes of Medicaid because the person with a disability has literally no control. Um, and there's a provision in the trust which says that the money in the trust cannot be used for anything that would be covered by government benefits. Um, and again, this accomplishes the same thing. It can't be counted as an asset for purposes of Medicaid because it can't be used in any kind of normal way by your loved one. So you got to really, you know, trust the trustee. Um, and then even if you form this arrangement, it can't cover housing in many instances, you know, it, it, anything that the government could provide, it's not going to cover. So um, what you do, what, you know, prior to the passage of ABLE, what you were doing when you formed this vehicle was basically saying, I'm going to turn my child into a government claimant, even though I may have the resources to help them. And even though I may want to help them later in life, I'm going to instead, you know, make them dependent on, you know, WIC and Section 8. Um, and um, uh, and so that's what that's what people did. Um, and are still doing uh, to some extent. So it was against that backdrop that the ABLE Act passed, um, and ABLE was a, an amendment to the Internal Revenue Code, which created a new type of tax-preferred savings account. So the ABLE account is very much like the traditional college savings account, mm-hmm. um, except that the money inside the ABLE account is meant to be used to cover disability-related expenses. The The tax preference that's attached to the account is not the showstopper. Um, The real bells and whistles on the ABLE Act are that the um, income earned inside of the account and the balance of the account are not counted as income and assets for purposes of Medicaid eligibility. So any person with a qualifying disability can have one ABLE account and in any given year, 
people, any people, parents, friends, relatives, the individual with a disability can contribute up to the gift exempt amount for the year. So in this year, that happens to be $15,000. So you can put that amount of money into the account um, and not have it count as an asset for purposes of Medicaid. And the money inside the account can be used for disability related expenses, which is this really broadly defined term, which can include things that the government would ordinarily cover like housing and utilities um, uh, uh, and food. So that's a real improvement over what came before it. And if you're somebody who works, if you're an individual with a disability that works, that $15,000 a year contribution limit is increased. So you can contribute um, more than $15,000. One of of the issues with ABLE, though, is... um, income that you earn in the workforce that you then contribute to your ABLE account is still counted as income for purposes of uh, the SSI eligibility test, which means it still counts against you in most of the states for purposes of Medicaid. So even though now um, people with disabilities have this savings vehicle um, where they can put money that they earn um, and, and, and accumulate more than $2,000 of financial reserve, um, Mm. their income is still counted against them. So they still aren't able to earn more than, you know, whatever the state limitation happens to be. So, you know, it might be like 1200 bucks a month or something like that in some state, like in some states it's, it's that low. So, Mm. uh, so it's, it's only partially helpful, but it did, um, it did get us some way down the road toward allowing families to be able to, help their loved ones. So now instead of being able to give my son nothing, um, I can give him up to $15,000 a year in this account, Um, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, which is just, it's really a big, it's really a big relief. But um, Mm -hmm. at the same time, um, if you think about who, who this provision helps, you know, it helps people in situations like mine. You know, we have a, a family that has some financial stability and we have some money to contribute to this account. But not everybody's in that position. So if you're, say, an individual with a disability um, who doesn't have a family in that position and you're using the ABLE account to save, you know, money above the $2,000 that you're permitted to have by Medicaid and you're still wage restricted, um, it's it's really not as useful as it could be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it really struck me that like this is all against the backdrop of this catch twenty two. That it it sounds like for the overwhelming majority of people, they really don't have a choice about whether or not to rely on Medicaid. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right in many parts of the country. Yeah. 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 So in your in your paper. I mean, it seems to me that the sort of motivating impulse, for better or for worse, behind some of these restrictions was, you know, concerns about people taking advantage of of the system. But you make a, a, a somewhat radical on its face proposal, and then I think pretty convincingly show why it's not as radical as it sounds. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. So in the paper, what I suggest is that the social support portion of Medicaid. So those services that are covered by waiver programs should not be means tested at all. Uh, And 
I, I understand the immediate argument that comes to mind for everybody is let's say, you know, Warren Buffett has a child with a disability. Why should we give them access to social services for free? Um, and you know, that's, that's just, that's just an outlier. Um, the problem here is that, you know, typical families, um, who could afford to help are being prevented from doing it. People who could work um, uh, more are being prevented from doing it. Um, the system that we have in place, uh, it infantilizes people with disabilities um, and it, it interferes with normal avenues of family support. And it, it is, uh, it is at bottom, the government inserting itself into people's lives in places where it really just shouldn't be. Um, and, uh, it's costing, it's costing the government money. Like this, this interference, um, in people's free choice is actually costing the government money, right? Um, it's having to pay out claims for benefits like housing or food that it might not otherwise have to pay, uh, because it's preventing people from earning as much money as they could, or it's preventing families from giving the support that they could, um, uh, uh, at the low end of the income spectrum, the system is really problematic because um, it's preventing people who are already um, in a low employment category from accumulating the kind of uh, resources that they would need to do even modest things like make a security deposit on an apartment. So we're increasing, uh, you know, we're increasing um, financial instability in an already financially unstable community. Um, and it, it just it, it the law creates. Uh, the system that's set up creates really perverse incentives for people to um, uh, become claimants when they might not want to be. Yeah, I, and I'm going to have to say it, there's almost a kind of cruelty to the system that you describe, where you know people who already have you know n needs that aren't otherwise satisfied by society and how we normally set up kind of social expectations then have this additional burden put on them to just get the basic accommodations that they need. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. Um, and, uh, you know, in my thinking about this issue, I'm often thinking about um, the person with a disability who is you know, ready, willing, and able to be a full part of the workforce and who's being prevented from doing so, um, you know, by social circumstances and by this really, you know, perverse set of financial restrictions created by the law. Um, at the same time, um, you know, a pretty decent sized group of people uh, who would be affected by this change are also people who would have difficulty you know, navigating a bureaucracy um, who need help doing it. That's why they need assistance, um, uh, social assistance. Um, uh, and so, you know, if you set up a system where you say, well, in order to, you know, in order to maintain um, social assistance, you need to go through all these bureaucratic hairpin turns that require you to have assistance. It's just, it's really um, just a really inefficient way of doing things. Yeah, and, and, and I took it from your paper that you kind of observe that the concerns about people taking advantage of 
the changes you provoke proposed are actually kind of backward in the sense that, you know, higher income people seem to already have the resources to take advantage of them. And that it's ironically the least well-off people who are the least likely to currently be able to kind of manage this. Oh, that's exactly right. So, um, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, when you think about who is able to engage in financial planning, you know, who's able to fund one of these tax preferred savings accounts, um, well, you know, middle to high income people are doing that. Middle to high income families are doing that. So I, I'm, I'm convinced that if you open up these services, if you make them so that they're not income limited, there isn't going to be this unanticipated flood of claimants because, you know, all the people who are, who are, you know, technically limited out by these income and asset limitations are, most of those folks are probably already engaged in the kind of planning that, you know, artificially impoverishes them so that they, they fall, you know, within the guidelines. Um, uh, If you look at, you know, in the city where uh, you live, there are advocacy groups for, you know, various categories of disability and those advocacy groups often are putting on programming um, I'm on the board of the Down Syndrome Association of Central Ohio, and one feature of our programming that's a regular feature is how to do financial planning around the around the Medicaid guidelines. Like, how do you how do you do financial planning so that you can maintain the waiver? Um, and so, people who can do it are doing it already. Uh, and so, I think if you do a budget projection of this, it's not going to cost the government that much more. Um, and uh, you know, in the meantime, you're you're increasing the size of the tax base and potentially decreasing the number of benefit claimants you have who are claiming benefits unrelated to disability when maybe they don't need to be doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it struck me that the proposal that you make based on your description of it actually sounds like it's not only more equitable at its heart, but also even potentially a cost neutral or even a, even maybe less expensive, depending on kind of how people react to, to the changes. And in closing, I, I wonder, like in, in the wake of the passage of the ABLE Act, um, do you think there's momentum to move any of these uh, kinds of proposals forward in the future? Um yeah, I don't know. You know, this is part of why I. Um, so we have we haven't really talked about it at all, but um, I have been doing some research in Europe about what kind of systems they use, and I was hoping to find something that I might be able to bring back and say, "Look at this, you know, look at this revenue neutral or this cost saving proposal um, that we might, by comparison, be able to adapt." Um, in terms of political momentum um, to do something like that, you know, it takes. It takes, you know, years, like decades. Um, I mean, not necessarily decades, but a- the ABLE Act itself was in the works for, I don't know, maybe t- close to 10 years, more potentially. Um, it takes a long time to get something like this onto the books. Part of the problem uh, with amending the current system is the federal government, um, by funding everything through Medicaid and, and pushing those dollars out to the states, gives the states autonomy, some degree of autonomy over how they spend the money. And so it, part, of the, part of the deal in the original legislation was the federal government cannot come back and force states to um, adopt new uh, broadened um, um, 
income and asset limitations. So some states still have the income and asset limitations that were in place in the 60s when the law was originally passed. Um, and in the original law, those amounts were not indexed for inflation. Oh, so boy. when you talk about political will to really enact some kind of sweeping reform, by, you know, so for instance, t- moving the income and asset guidelines entirely um, for access to the social services, boy, you know, I mean, I, I, if you can't even get people to move off the 1960s amount that wasn't index for inflation. I mean, how are you going to get states to come to the position where they just remove the restrictions entirely? Another example of where this could have changed but didn't was with the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, the Affordable Care Act Medicaid eligibility um, allows um, over $16,000 a year of income and there is no asset limitation. So you can have as much money in a bank account as you want and still um, come in um, to the marketplace. The government had the opportunity to offer packages that would have covered services like the waiver services um, in that Affordable Care Act eligibility, and it didn't. So um, if you're a person with a disability, you know, you can come into the, you know, you can come into the ACA marketplace and buy insurance and have, you know, a decent amount of income and as many, as much in as you want, but that that Medicaid insurance that you buy does not, uh, it, it does not cover the waiver services. And so this was just a, like, in my view, a complete failure. Um, states can apply uh, to um, include some of the waiver services in their, uh, in their offerings, um, but very few, none that I'm aware of have come forward with a really robust package that would completely cover disability. Um, and very few have done anything in that direction. So um, I I don't know how this would be accomplished. But for me, the fact that this, you know, this political and bureaucratic thicket exists I just, I, I refuse to take this as a, as a deterrent. I mean, it's so ridiculous when you think about, mm-hmm. when you think about how complex it's become. So all, all this complexity has built up around it because, you know, in the, at the end of the day, I don't think there's anybody in Congress that would say, oh, we want to keep people with disabilities out of the workforce, right? N- nobody wants that. Or I don't think mm-hmm. there's anybody in Congress that would say, yeah, I, I don't want families to support their loved ones who have a disability. Like that's, just, nobody's going to say that, right? Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> So all these weird yeah. little fixes come in uh, that make it more complex. ABLE is one of those, right? So ABLE is something that the federal government could do to provide some relief in this situation. And it did it through the tax code. Um, uh, and so it's this, you know, it's this federal level thing um, that it was able to do. And because most states peg Medicaid eligibility to eligibility for SSI, which is determined at the federal level, this is something the feds could do that was a workaround um, of incalcitrant states. But uh, unless you mm-hmm. just blow the whole Medicaid system up with regard to disability, I just, I mean, it's a really difficult, it's a really thorny problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope that we can at least make in- incremental changes going forward because it sounds like, it sounds like it's really harming a lot of a lot of people. So, so Stephanie, thank you so much for spending the time or taking the time to talk to me today. It was great. Uh, it was great. Thanks for talking to me.
This is Dolan Ellis. I hope you've enjoyed sharing these songs with us. The folks at Western Savings sure have enjoyed preparing this special album just for you. And I guess that's because the people at Western not only appreciate having you for a customer, they also love this great state of Arizona as much as I do. You know, since 1929, Western Savings has been growing right along with this whole big state. And they realize what it means to be Arizona's largest savings and loan. For now, and until we meet again, adios. <laughs>